we know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. I'm sitting here about to drink myself a nice cup of tea while I discuss... Well, we're going to discuss a very simple but complicated and sometimes convoluted subject, and that is, what in the world is bushcraft, really? And that's where it gets complicated. It's a simple answer. Bushcraft is skills in the woods. But we overcomplicate things all the time, because that's just human nature. So I wanted to kind of dive deep into terminology that we use that kind of get thrown around quite a bit by a lot of different people and try to help maybe sift through all of it to get the core real answers that maybe we can all kind of come down to on common ground. Hmm. That tea was hotter than I was expecting. <clears throat> so bushcraft, let's go by the actual definition of bushcraft. Let's break it down and just go like to, to a Merriam-Webster's dictionary of what those two words are because there's two words smashed together. Bush and craft. Let's focus on craft first. Craft, by definition, is the manual labor performed by your hands and tools. Simple as that. Very simple. It is manual labor performed by your hands. What you create, what you do. That is craft. All right? The bush is... A very general terminology for wildlands. So that could be forests, that could be meadows, that could be mountainsides, that could be deserts, that could be scrub brush, that could be tundra, that could be high arctic, that could be badlands, that could be barren lands, that could be <clears throat> boreal forest, mixed hardwoods, rainforest, jungle, uh, cloud forest, all the kinds of ecology out there. Wherever it is wild, that is the bush. All right? When you combine those two words together to form bushcraft, the, the straight answer is pretty straightforward, don't you think? It is manual labor performed in the woods, performed in the wild. And so, by that very definition, everything else that comes around it gets sucked into that term, bushcraft. So when we hear the word bushcraft and we think of, well... Let's look in the world of marketing. And that's kind of like one of the biggest issues I have with how that term has been marketed and kind of bastardized. Bushcraft these days means what kind of knife you're carrying. Instead of a hunting knife or a combat knife or a tactical knife, you're carrying a bushcraft knife. That That's not accurate. And we have bushcraft axes. Okay. We have bushcraft saws and we have bushcraft tents and bushcraft tarps and bushcraft jackets and bushcraft pants and bushcraft oh lord we're marketing the word bushcraft and capitalizing on its popularity to a level that is getting very convoluted and that term alone is getting very confusing because it's none of those things it is what you have in your mental toolkit not your physical toolkit what you have the when you have the ability to light a fire that is bushcraft whether it's a match a road flare or a hand drill doesn't matter okay bushcraft is the lighting of the fire and how you know how to light a fire that is bushcraft 
felling a tree and bucking it safely into firewood or the components for making certain tools, whether it's with an axe or a knife or a saw, doesn't matter. It's the fact that you felled the tree, bucked it, split it, carved it, whatever you need to do. That's the bushcraft, not the tools used, not the brands, not the product. It's the results and skill. That is bushcraft, the manual labor performed in the wilds. Bushcraft. And there's a lot of other terms out there that get kind of complicated and convoluted because different people in different places prefer different terms and terminology. You look at things like the word woodcraft. Woodcraft is a very traditional American, historic American term. Woodcraft. Very similar to the term wood lore, which is very popular over the United Kingdom and parts of Europe. Wood lore and bushcraft and woodcraft are all the same thing, just with different titles from different days. Back in the 1800s and 1900s, woodcraft was the term for most people. When you look at George Washington Sears, a.k.a. Nesmuk, or you look at Horace Keffert, or you look at Bradford Angier and Colonel Townsend Whalen, these authors of wood skills in the bygone days, in the golden age of camping, uh, the early 1900s into the 1930s, they were practicing what they called wood uh, woodcraft. Straightforward. That's what they called it. And those very same skills today are called bushcraft. Why is that? Well, the reason being is, in the northern hemisphere, we refer to the out to the wildlands as the woods. In much of the southern hemisphere, they refer to it as the bush. Now, that term has been co-opted and not necessarily appropriated, potentially appropriate, but it has been absorbed and uh, adopted by the Northern Hemisphere in many rural areas. When <clears throat> you're talking to your aunt or your uncle who are going out to pick some fiddleheads or whatever, you see them with a basket in their hand, and they're getting into their truck or they're getting in their axe or whatnot, you say, hey, auntie, what are you up to? And she goes, oh, going out to the bush, going to pick some fiddleheads and some, and some leeks. Or you bump into your uncle, he's got his chainsaw and his axe in the back, and he, he hey, hey, uncle, what are you up to? Oh, heading out to the bush, going to cut some firewood. The term has been kind of adopted by the Northern Hemisphere, but it was mostly used as, mo as popular vernacular in the Southern Hemisphere, whether it was in South Africa, Australia, and parts of South America that were English-speaking. That was where the bush terminology came from, and the woods was more of the eastern woodlands, uh, the boreal forest and such in the northern hemisphere. So, woodcraft, bushcraft, they're interchangeable. Same with wood lore. It was more of a European, uh, mostly British terminology for the same thing. They're all the same thing. Manual skill performed in the wilds. Okay? Now, that's not to get confused with wildcrafting, which is a whole other thing involving herbalism and understanding of plants and trying to rewild certain eco uh, ecology and certain ecosystems. That's a different thing altogether, as well as the people themselves trying to rewild. So that's a different thing, which has got a whole other confusion getting involved. But it can be integrated into your bushcraft or woodcraft or wood lore <clears throat> by understanding your ecology, which I think is an very important part of bushcraft that people kind of overlook understanding the ecosystem that you live in and you're surrounded by it and immersed in and how it all interacts and is impacted by each other and by you that's important because it's going to help you benefit yourself while not causing damage or detriments to the eco ecosystem itself but things get even more complicated because 
in the 70s and 80s, we had this popularity of a term, survival, survival training, survival instructor, survival, survival, wilderness survival, emergency survival. And that's nothing to, uh, to blow your nose at. That's nothing to make fun of. But we have to understand where it is integrated into bushcraft. Survival skills are bushcraft skills, period. End of story. But survival goes beyond manual labor. Survival includes psychology and understanding how your mind and how your emotions can play games with you or interact or interfere with your survival in an emergency. So to me, a survival course is more about psychological, more psychological than physical. In fact, Gino Ferry, one of my mentors growing up, my main mentor growing up, often said survival is nine-tenths psychological, nine parts psychological to one part physical. Doesn't matter how strong you are, doesn't matter how physically fit or how physically unfit you are, it's more about whether you have the will to live and whether you are willing to go through all the different dangers and all the different risks to make sure you survive. That is, in a nutshell to me, what survival means. Now, for most folks in Canada, a survival situation lasts anywhere from one hour or even five minutes to 72 hours. And we're talking about a wilderness survival scenario. You're lost in the woods, your snow machine broke down, your boat flipped, your plane crashed, whatever it is. Most of the time in Canada, that will last maybe three days before rescue finds you, as long as you do everything right. And we're going to be doing a special episode on loss proofing and survival training and survival psychology and the right things to do and all that kind of stuff later in a further episode. Today, we're just going to talk about terminology. <clears throat> so survival skills are bushcraft combined with psychological training and conditioning to make sure that you do well and survive and live a long, happy, healthy life out of an emergency situation, which is a survival situation. If your life is not at risk, it's just camping. Let's call it what it is. So a lot of people will go and do a bushcraft trip and they'll take their tent and they'll take all this gear with them. They'll take all their gear and their camping clothes and their camping, their tent and their cookware and they'll take their food and all this stuff and water purification, disinfection methods and all that kind of stuff. Things that we've talked about in the past. And when they get back, their friends are like, oh, you went on a survival trip, huh? No, you went camping. Bushcraft is camping with some carving. <laughs> I, I, I'm joking because that's really what it feels like sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I'm just a glorified Boy Scout when I teach bushcraft. And in a lot of ways, I am. I, I'm not going <laughs> to knock Boy Scouts. I'm not going to knock bushcraft either. They, they walk hand in hand because Boy Scouts are learning bushcraft. And camping is bushcraft. As long as you live outside of the scuba tank that is your equipment. So when you use a wood fire to cook your meal instead of using the, the camp stove you brought with you, and even then, a camp stove, depending on the style, if it's a twig stove or a wood-burning stove, you're still doing bushcraft in that definition because you're cooking over a fire and working with firewood and working with kindling, fuel, tinder, and all that kind of stuff. But if you just use a jet boil and just get the water boiling almost instantaneously, that's not really bushcraft at least by the definition we're going by. You're still cooking in the woods, so the cooking process would be bushcraft, but using the stove is not. All right, we're going back to that definition. Bushcraft is the manual labor in the wildlands. 
But once that, let's say your stove breaks down and a bear steals your food bag and all that kind of stuff, now you might be more in a survival situation because you're no longer comfortable and you're more likely to be injured or you're more likely to be killed. That's a survival scenario. So survival skills are bushcraft skills. Bushcraft. Just keep that in mind. <clears throat> to help kind of convey and make sure that we're not being exclusionary to a lot of things there was a, an amazing organization an amazing rendezvous that happened uh, about five or six years back now maybe even further back uh, called the wood smoke rendezvous and it was de developed and organized by people like dave westcott steve watts rest his soul joseph flowers or joe flowers and a few other awesome people who brought in some of the biggest names in bushcraft from around the world to one place to talk about traditional camping and bushcraft and how it all kind of interreacts and interrelates and during that Stuart goring sadly i wasn't able to make it to that gathering i was really hoping to be at wood smoke but it just did not come up i didn't have the time or the money for the trip and i didn't have by the time i found out about wood smoke most of the tickets had already been sold and i just could not scrounge the money up to go sadly uh that's that's the reality of it i miss a lot of cool awesome organizations and gatherings just because of my schedule and my lack of funds sadly i got to make up for it by going to the global bushcraft symposium last summer though and in a future episode, Ryan and I, when Ryan is able to come back and hang out with me, I think we're going to talk about our trip out there. Because that was one of the first times Ryan and I actually had a chance to interact and we drove out to Alberta from Peterborough, Ontario. That's a long drive. It was about 36 hours straight. We had to make a few stops, but 36 hours. And that trip was in itself an amazing story that I want to talk about on the podcast. But when we were there, what we got to see, who we got to listen to, the interactions we had uh, we had with a lot of people but also the the debates that would come up once in a while often caused by my bullheaded refusal to accept a certain term uh that a lot of other people out there love to use and we're going to get into that term momentarily but i want to go over what happened at wood smoke with Stuart goring and later by tim smith if you want to see what i'm talking about here what i'm about to talk about if you go on uh, YouTube, you can find a video done by on, on David Westcott's YouTube page. It was filmed and edited by uh, Randy Briusma from Caramat Wilderness Ways, and it's hosted by Tim Smith, who runs Jack Mountain Bushcraft and is the host of the Jack Mountain Bushcraft podcast. The JMB podcast, or the Jack Mountain Bushcraft podcast, I think they're at 87 or 88 episodes or even more now. Phenomenal podcast. Other than ours, one of the best I recommend out there. Uh, they are phenomenal, and Tim is a titan in his own right, beyond just the fact that he is a large and in charge man who looks like Paul Bunyan, Sweeney Axe. I have a lot of admiration for that big fellow, just like me. We're both big boys, and we both love to be in the woods. So, Tim, oh, if you're listening, Tim, I doubt you are, but if you are, a lot of admiration for you, brother. A lot of admiration. And Tim was one of the most eloquent speakers I've ever heard trying to define what is bushcraft. And luckily, he was the one hosting Stewart's Venn Diagram. So if you want a picture of a Venn Diagram, if you're not sure what a Venn Diagram is, it's three circles, or it could be more, but we're going to keep it to three circles that interlock in the middle. So one comes in from the bottom right, one comes in from the bottom left, and they kind of, in, uh, they kind of 
uh, are superimposed over each other. And then finally, a third one is brought in from the top and superimposes the other two as well. And where those three interact is where one thing is in agreement with all three subjects. That's a Venn diagram. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, look up the term Venn diagram, V-E-N-N diagram. Or you can just literally go to type in Dave, uh, type in uh, Tim Smith, bushcraft diagram or defining bushcraft. Tim Smith defining bushcraft is probably going to be the easiest way on YouTube for you to see what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> and what the Venn diagram is, the top circle represents indigenous technology. The bottom right circle represents modern camping and survival. And the bottom left represents traditional or classic camping. And how these all kind of interact with each other and where they all come together, that's bushcraft. So if you are strictly into it, learning ancestral knowledges, so flint napping, uh, brain tanning, smoke, uh, smoke tanning in general, so brain tanning, soap tanning, egg tanning, as well as the tannin style tannin, so using barks and leaves and such. Uh, or if you're learning, uh, trying to learn more about making traditional tools and tra traditional technologies without modern influence, so no steel knives, no saws made of steel, basically using stone, bone, antler, shell, uh, teeth and all those beautiful natural organic materials that we can use in nature. That is your ancestral technology or ancestral skills. Some people call it primitive. And we're going to get to that soon, I promise, because that's probably why a lot of people are tuning in because they love watching me get angry about that word. But when we look at that term, indigenous or ancestral skills or ancestral technologies, we kind of picture... Let's keep this all simple. And, and Tim get, kept it beautifully simple by t simply titling it, him and Stuart simply titling it, Fire by Friction. So an example of indigenous technology or ancestral technology is fire by friction, rubbing two sticks together to make fire. All right? Modern camping and survival can be easily equated to the ferro rod or a Bic lighter or a match. All right? These are the people that bring nylon tents, they bring uh, ultralight gear. They're using mostly petroleum-based byproducts and titanium and aluminum and steel and all that kind of stuff. And they're using Swiss Army knives and some of the best quality steel knives of the market now. Collapsible saws, uh, ultralight axes that are made high quality with polymer handles and all that kind of stuff. That's modern survival and modern camping. So if you look at an ultralight backpacker following the Ray Jardine or the Rayway method of ultralight backpacking, they might fall into modern survival and modern camping. If you're looking at people that carry a ferro rod because they know that a lighter or a match can get soaked and a fire by friction is not always the best thing to depend on in an emergency, they're practicing modern survival. Okay? Classic camping are the folks that are, and this also includes expeditions, if they're using Kevlar canoes instead of a birch bark canoe for the indigenous skills, or a cedar strip canvas canoe would be more of your classic camping. All right, so that's another way of looking at this example. If you're trying to think of like simple things to define these categories of indigenous or ancestral skills, modern survival skills, and modern camping skills, and classic camping skills. You can think of it as birch bark canoe for the indigenous or ancestral skills. Modern Kevlar and Royal X canoes for modern camping and survival skills. And Cedar Strip canvas canoes or wood canoes for the classic camping skills. Okay? But by the fire definition that we started with, with fire by friction versus, uh, versus ferro rod, we come to flint and steel. 
That's a good example. And the classic campers are sometimes the classic black powder rendezvous kind of folks who do reenactments. They might be reenacting Mountain Man era, Mount reenacting Cowboy era, reenacting uh, Civil War or Revolutionary War or French and Indian War or War of 1812 era. And they're going to be living in canvas tents or even potentially wigwams. They're going to be using flint and steel to light their fires. They're going to have a clay pipe instead of a cigarette kind of thing. Uh, they're going to be dressed in smoked tan buckskin, but they'll also have linen and wool and canvas. Whereas if you're going to be dressing in indigenous or let's say, let's keep it to ancestral. I don't want to talk about appropriation in this, but if we're going to be focusing on ancestral skills, you might be focusing on brain tanning uh, and smoke tanned hides and bark tanned leathers and such. Whereas modern campers are going to be wearing their, you know, Columbia River or Columbia brand or Wind River brand wind pants and nylon jackets and Gore-Tex boots and ultralight merino wool socks and all that kind of beautiful com combinations of kit that are modern materials. So those are your three kind of big groups of people that are out there. You have the modern survival and camping, you have the classic campers, and you have the ancestral skills folk. And where all three of those groups kind of come together in their core value, that's bushcraft. That is whether it's smoke tanning a hide or knowing how to dress properly in the cold in any material, that's bushcraft. Staying out overnight in the woods with a modern tent, or let's say you're just going out tarp camp because you're an ultralight backpacker, you're bringing a tarp and you got to know your knots. That's bushcraft. Same thing with the knots. They're going to have to be known for making a canvas tent. What if you lost your tent pegs for your modern tent? Well, you can take a stick and carve it and make that into a new tent peg. And some ultralight backpackers actually prefer to do that so they don't have to carry tent pegs at all. So they'll make pegs as they go with dead twigs they find on the ground and whittle them with their Swiss army knife. That's bushcraft. And for those, of course, in the ancestral skills knowledge group, almost everything they do relies on bushcraft, from high tanning to making their fires to making their water to carrying water. All of it is bushcraft. So all three categories, when combined and where they meet, that is bushcraft at its core. They are all bushcraft by that, and therefore nothing is excluded. No one group is excluded from bushcraft. <sighs> I think we got that pretty well explained, and I really appreciate Tim and Randy and Stuart all coming together with Dave Westcott at Woodsmoke to help break down that definition to help everybody understand it better. But there's a term that kind of gets shoehorned and wedged into a lot of this stuff. And I, I've had talk, conversations with a lot of different people. And one person was saying, you know, survival is what happens in the first 72 hours. If you're staying out there for more than that, that's bushcraft. No, any hand skill, anything done with your hands and your mind that in the woods is bushcraft. Whether it's tying a knot, doesn't matter if it's made with natural cordage or modern fiber cord. Doesn't matter... If you're setting up your shelter and it's a lodge covered in bark or a lodge covered in tarps, it's still bushcraft. It doesn't matter if your fire is made with a ferro rod or a match or a flint and steel striker kit or what's called a strike light kit. It doesn't matter if it's friction fires of any variety. It is bushcraft. Bushcraft is in the mind. Bushcraft is in the hands. It's not in the kit you carry. But there's a term that gets wedged in there as well and i've been dancing around and i've mentioned it a couple of times and that term is primitive skills i am so sick to death 
of hearing that word. And I know a lot of people get their backs up when I say that because they make a living from it. They, they teach primitive skills. They teach all these things. I have no interest in talking about the word primitive or using that word for anything that I teach. Um, and this is not, this, some people might want to call this being politically correct or trying to be too much of a social justice warrior or trying to be too leftist or Lord knows what other terms I want to use. I'm going to make this very straightforward. I am indigenous. My father is Nishnabek. I am Nishnabek. I live in a Nishnabek reserve. I am learning my language. I'm not fluent, but I speak it and I'm speaking more and more every day. I practice my ceremonies. I go to my ceremonies with my elders. I pray every day in our language. I, I give thanks and I work with the environment around me in the way that I was raised by my father's people. Period. I am indigenous. I am Nishnabe. And the word primitive has been used to justify horrible things that have happened to my people. Period. End of story. Well, let's dive deeper. Even though that's the end of the story in my eyes, people want to bring it up again and again and again. Well, it just means prime. Primitive, the root word is prime, and prime means first. Yeah. And there's a lot of terms out there that we use that originally don't have any bad connotations to them. What is the Latin word for the color black? Don't have to say it out loud, folks. You know the word. Would you ever call anyone that word? If you do, we have nothing else to say to each other. I don't, I don't need you in my life. Words pick up new meanings as years go. And so a word that may have not been offensive at one time can now be considered harmful. And it can be used to justify terrible things. The word primitive originally meant first. And so when we say primitive skills, people think first skills, indigenous skills, those skills. But... That's those of us that have learned that term and understand that term and have picked up that term from other people that are in our field of study. The rest of the world, world hears the term primitive and they think crude. They think barbaric sometimes. They think obsolete. They think behind the times. They think backwards. They think old and not necessary and... and and they, did, they don't even have the wheel. They never even had the wheel. That's where you start getting a lot of that personality from people, is when that term is used openly and comfortably and used in a way that is not of its origin. Uh, or of its origin. I'm not going to say that you shouldn't call me Aboriginal. I'm not going to say you shouldn't call me Native American. I'm not going to get into all that stuff. But if you call me primitive... And a lot of people think that they're not. They're just calling the skills that I have primitive. I'm going to tell you right now. That's going to be a problem. I will not use it. I'm not going to stop people from using it any day. I don't think anything I say in this podcast is going to change their minds. Uh, your minds, if you are listening right now, getting your back up a little bit, I understand. I'm not trying to say that you're a terrible person. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you think I am a crude barbarian or anything like that. I'm not calling you racist. That's not part of this. But the word was used by the Canadian government to justify residential schools. And it was used to justify the 60s scoop. And it was used to justif justify 
horrible things happening to my people across Canada. And it was also used in the United States. And it was also used in Australia. And it was also used in Africa. And we see that all the way to denying (laughs) the beautiful constructions made by the peoples of those lands. The mounds of North America, the mound builder cultures of North America were put towards, uh, were were claimed to have been made by everything from Acadians, like A-K-K-A-D-I-A-N's, not Acadians from Nova Scotia and Quebec, but Acadians from Sumeria area, and Sumerians as well, and Anunnaki, and all these things, and even aliens must have built the Great Serpent Mounds and Monk's Mound of Cahokia and all that stuff. Why? Well, because the people that lived here are too primitive to ever built those. But we know they built them. And the pyramids couldn't have been built by backwards Arabic or African peoples. They had to have been built by aliens. Why? Well, because they're so backwards and and, and primitive. They couldn't have built that. And we justify these things again and again and again by saying that the people there are too primitive to have been able to do it. And yet we keep finding more and more evidence that, yes, they did. And yet we keep calling these things that they do primitive. We're not talking about cavemen here. We're not talking about Neanderthal. We're not talking about Florences or Homo habilis or Homo erectus or any other of the hominids prior to humans, modern humans. We're talking about modern humans. We're talking about people that share more in common genetically than they share uncommon. Uh, more things they have in common than they have uncommon with each other. Genetically, philosophically even. And yet we still look to them like cavemen. The indigenous people of North America were working copper 2,500 years plus before contact with any Europeans, including Vikings, or genuinely the Scandinavians. We're not going to call them Vikings because Viking was an act and a cultural portion of the Scandinavian culture during the Viking Age. The, the Scandinavians that came over here a thousand years ago, we were already working copper 2,500 years before they got here. All right? Copper is not a primitive technology by most people's standards. Copper is a very, very advanced technology. But let's go deeper. Let's look at stone technology. 99% of the world cannot make a Clovis point out of stone. of the people in the world cannot make stone tools at all, let alone a Clovis point. And yet for over 150,000 years, if not millions of years, humans and proto-humans, hominids, were making stone tools to butcher meat, process wood, process plant fiber, everything. And it's only been in the last few millennia that we started using metal. And in that time, we still had people working stone. Muskets, flintlock muskets, required a flint napper to shape them. We, we still use the concepts that we consider primitive in modern living. Stone workers are using the exact same technologies as stone workers from 3,500 years ago in the Middle East. Wood carvers are using the exact same methods and methodology and understanding of wood that our ancestors used for tens of thousands of years. Nothing about that is primitive. 
when I make uh, a buffalo bison scapula hoe, I, I finished one today, and last week I made the blade. And what I did was I took the shoulder blade bone, the scapula of a bison that I've been aging for about a year, letting the, uh, the birds pick away all the remnant meat and chunks that I couldn't cut it off of it with a knife. And then I took it, and there's a ridge called the, sp- the scapula spine. And that has to be removed to be able to be made into a hoe blade for cutting into dirt. Well, I could have sat there with a carpentry saw or even a bone saw and sawed through it by hand, and it would have taken me about probably three minutes, give or take. And then I would have had to sit there for about 20 minutes with a rasp and a file and then sandpaper, abrading the remnants down until it was smooth and not going to be too rough on my hands, not going to be picking up too much dirt because of how coarse it was, things like that. Or... I could have done what I did, and that was I took a shard of chert, uh, about twice the size of my thumbnail, and I scored the edge, both sides, and that took me about three minutes to, to cut in, uh, scoring again and again and again. It took me about three, maybe four minutes to do that, down each side of that scapula ridge or scapula spine. And then I took a hammerstone and smacked it once, and the whole thing broke off clean along those scorings. So in about three or four minutes, the amount of time it would have taken me to cut with a with a saw, because bone is quite dense, and the bone saws are nice, but I'm talking about hand saws. I'm talking about using hand tools here, not, a, not an electric band saw. I got it done in approximately the same amount of time I would have if I used a carpentry saw, or uh, even a bone saw would cut a little faster, but not much, not by much. So I've got three minutes, maybe four minutes committed into this, about the equivalent of time. It's going to take me about 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes to smooth it all down with a rasp file and sandpaper. Well, instead, I took another shard of flint that had a bit of a crescent edge on it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a straight edge. It was kind of inward curved, kind of like what you would see on a... A router and I took that and I dragged it 10 times down that spine and in those 10 swipes pushing down and towards me like a draw knife almost I scraped off everything sharp and coarse and because of how the stone was it was sharp enough to cut through all that bone all the while smooth and hard enough to kind of polish behind it as I go because I wasn't just using the edge I was using the whole surface of the flat bottom of that uh, what we call a inside radius scraper in, archeolo- in archaeological terms. It's called an inside radial scraper. And I just pulled it 10 times towards me and took off everything sharp and rough and it smoothed out and looked polished. It looked polished when I was done in 10 swipes. It took me maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute to do exactly what it would have taken me 15, 20 minutes to do with a file and a rasp and sandpaper. But we call the stone method primitive. I, I don't understand that. That's not obsolete. That's not crude. That's that's done. That's smooth. It's 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 perfect. And then I had to make the hoe today. Went out and found a branch from an apple tree. I was hoping to find a piece of yellow birch, but I had nothing in my wood pile. So I went out and found a green branch on an apple tree. And I trimmed it and I used my knowledge of the tree and how I need it to work to find the right branch with the right node coming out of it to be the handle. And I cut that branch off and I trimmed it down 
I used a handsaw to cut it. And I used my crooked knife or Wagikmon to carve everything into shape because I just didn't have the time to go full traditional ancestral knowledge skills. I had to get it done for a live video we were doing. But then I had to attach it all. I could have used, you know, JB Weld epoxy and I could have used screws and, uh, screws and nails and I could have used uh, duct tape or even like high-end uh, fiber wrap tape that would then be heat shrunk against it and hold it real nice and tight. But instead I used a mix of spruce gum with a bunch of other little things, tempers and oils and waxes that I mixed specially for it, especially for this specific task. And I have exact measurements of exactly how much of each ingredient has to be. I don't want to give away my, my recipe because it's my, it's my pride and joy. And I'm still tweaking the recipe one day when it's perfect, I'll announce it to the world and show people how I make my gum glue. But in this case, I use that instead of an epoxy like JB Weld or Gorilla Glue or wood glue or whatever you want to think of. And I heated it up, lathered it on, spread it out nice and thick. It was about a half an inch thick. And then I squeezed the bone blade into the wood handle. And the glue bonded to it. The, the, the epoxy that I made bonded to it and filled up every nook and cranny. And right then and there, after two minutes, it was rigid. It was stuck to that blade. All I had to do was reinforce it now. So I just wrapped it with a special notch that I'd carved into the, into the hoe blade with a flint blade, with a chert blade. And I started to wrap it with rawhide that I'd cut into a long 30-foot lace that I stretched out to almost 60 feet because of how tensile and how stretchy rawhide is. And then... I wrapped it knowing how to wrap it. I could have just coiled it all haphazardly, so like a lot of people do with their paracord, and it would have worked okay. But with the rawhide wrap the way it was, it's smooth, it's shallow, it's not going to be in the way, it doesn't look ugly, it doesn't look obtrusive, but most importantly, it reinforced every bit of that epoxy, and they work hand-in-hand hand together to hold that whole thing together, and I am using it tomorrow in my garden. Not just to, you know, move some loose soil that I dug up with a shovel. I'm going to be digging into sod with this thing. And it will cut it. It will cut into that sod as well as a steel hoe. And more importantly, if it does fail, I can fix it. How many of us know how to make a steel hoe? Blacksmiths notwithstanding. Step out of the, out of the, out of the conversation for a second. If you're not a blacksmith, do you know how to make a hoe and do it properly? If not... I know how to make one out of bone. I can make a rake out of an antler. I can make my own clothing from the land. I can make my own tools from the land. What is primitive about that? Why do we use that term? Why do we encourage that term? When we know, we know that the term is used in a hurtful manner towards other peoples. I'll never understand that. For me, the term needs to go the way of the dodo. It needs to be struck from our vocabulary. Not because we're trying to be social justice warriors. Not because we're trying to be politically correct. Because it's inaccurate. Simple as that. It's not accurate. Especially with the language that we use these days. Language evolves. Language changes all the time. And certain words lose their original meaning and become negative. 
An interesting way to look at it is the word piss. <laughs> so way back in the Middle Ages, the term piss was the actual official way to say going, for, uh, going pee. You're pissing. It wasn't looked at as a bad word. It wasn't looked at as vulgar or dirty. But over time, people understood what urea was and uric acid that was in the urine. And so they took the term urea and uric and added that to the definition of pissing. And that is urinating. You are creating urea. You're creating uric acid and all that kind of stuff to come out of you. And so the upper class of Europe started to say urinating. The lower class still said piss and eventually it became a dirty word because it's the peasant's language. It's not the king's language. It's not the queen's language. It's the, it's the peasant's language. And that word, that same thing can be said for a lot of other words that we look at as vulgar today. And so we don't say them. A lot of people that would say the word primitive won't say, I'm going to take a piss to their grandmother, right? If you won't say it to your grandmother, then you'll consider it vulgar personally i look at the word primitive as vulgar towards my grandmother and towards my grandparents in general and towards my family so i refuse to say the word i try not to i'm saying it tonight because well you need to hear it but it's also because it gets confused it's not just because it's offensive or rude to say to rude to say in regards to indigenous people and their skills and their technologies but also it's inaccurate and it's used it's misused a lot. How many times have you seen somebody carve, let's say a tent peg, or carve a spoon, or carve anything with a steel knife and call it primitive? That's a primitive spoon. That's a primitive tent peg. I hear it all the time. Maybe it's because I work in bushcraft and so I'm always reading bushcraft forums and always reading bushcraft posts on social media and hearing it hearing it but i hear the word primitive to describe things that are not primitive you used a steel blade how is that primitive <laughs> and i'll see people make a they'll call it a primitive fishing spear okay but then they use paracord to lash all the spokes of the blade together all the the prongs Paracord is nylon. That's braided nylon. That's poly well, it's polyester and other materials. But that's that's synthetic material. That's not primitive. Or they'll talk about how they're doing primitive living skills while they're wearing nylon and Gore-Tex. How? How is that primitive? And maybe this is me being a stickler. And maybe this is me being bullheaded. Maybe this is me being a stick in the mud and trying to ruin everybody's day by being politically correct. I don't care. I don't care if that bothers you. I don't care if it annoys you about me. If that's one annoying thing that you just can't get over with Caleb. He, he doesn't like the word primitive. He hates the word primitive. He makes me feel like I'm a racist. I don't care. I don't care if that offends you. Because the word primitive offends me and you still say it. So I don't care if it bothers you that I point out that I don't like it. <laughs> you see how that leaves us both pull a bullheaded and pigheaded and stubborn? We're both in an impasse there. So instead of arguing about it, instead of being angry about it, let's have a discussion about it. Should the word primitive be taken out of our vocabulary regarding bushcraft? I personally think so. If you disagree, I understand, but I want to understand better why you think that. And so, on that note, 
If you want to have that discussion, we'll be having that discussion on Canadian Bushcraft's page when this episode airs and we promote it. I'll be talking, we, we will have it in the comments section for you to discuss with us. Should the word primitive be struck from our vocabulary in regards to bushcraft and in general? I am for removing it from our language. And I understand a lot of people aren't, and I want to understand why, though. I want to understand what the reasoning is to keep that word in our vocabulary. But that's not the whole discussion of tonight. I want to go over and do a quick rundown and kind of a conclusion of the night. So what is bushcraft? It is the manual labor of our hands and mind in the woods, in the wilds, in the wildlands. Bushcraft, woodcraft, and wood lore are all the same thing. Survival skills are bushcraft plus survival training psychologically. That's through psychological, actual psychological training and conditioning to understand how your mind will react to emergency scenarios. Okay? So bushcraft is part of survival skills. Bushcraft is all-encompassing of everything from modern camping and survival training with ferro rods and Gore-Tex bivy bags and all that stuff. And it also encompasses traditional camping with flint and steel and canvas tents and buckskin and wool clothing. And it also encompasses ancestral skills. And that's the word I prefer over primitive. Before we go too much, I'm, I'm going to finish the conclusion, but in, in ancestral skills where you're using smoke-tanned hides and using flint blades... That's also bushcraft. Bushcraft covers all of that. And if you don't want to use the word primitive, or you're like, hey, he's taking a word, but how are we going to explain this thing? What are we going to call this? Call it ancestral. Our ancestors are never baggage. Our ancestors are never a bad word. Our ancestors are why we're here today. Our ancestors are why we are alive and why we are able to learn these things again. And so let's celebrate them. Instead of using the word primitive, just let it go away. Like the word woodcraft has in much of North America and has been replaced by bushcraft. Let's remove primitive and replace it with ancestral. Let's use that term. Let's celebrate ancestral knowledge and ancestral technology and ancestral skills. So I might be taking one word away from you, but I'm giving you a better one. All right? Hopefully that helps. That's my olive branch for the night. I'll give you a new word instead of primitive, ancestral. But let's have this discussion more. When this episode airs, we'll have it on Facebook. On We'll be promoting it on the Facebook page. And on there, I want you to have a conversation, a dialogue with us, a discussion, a conversation. Should we or should we not go the way of the dodo regarding the word primitive? And maybe we should replace it with ancestral. And maybe we shouldn't. Let's have that talk. And on that note, I want to thank you for listening to my talk. I want to thank you for being patient with me and tolerating my rants and ramblings. And once more, as per usual, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. I hope it inspired you. Hopefully you enjoy our next episode, too. Till then, take care. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. I hope you're enjoying this wholesome, sometimes deranged content. We here at Canadian Bushcraft love creating it. We do this podcast along with our live feed videos and several other projects for free to make sure information is shared far and wide to everyone. But if you'd like to help support this project and our other variety of projects, we would be so appreciative. You can find a link to our Patreon account in the information section of this podcast episode. As a patron, you will gain our undying love and admiration. And depending on the tier you choose, you'll also get a few kickbacks in return. 
These include weekly patron-only articles, monthly one-on-one video sessions with myself or other staff to help you with the skills you're trying to hone at home, and also content such as this podcast one week sooner than the public gets it. You also get to have input on upcoming episodes as well as any future videos we produce. As a small business who wish to remain sponsor-free, we appreciate any and all support from our fans and followers. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a good day.